And we should be live. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion. Welcome to Wealthion. Uh, special treat today, we have very good friend of the program, Stephanie Pomboy, macro analyst extraordinaire, uh, joining us again for her monthly appearance on this channel. Stephanie, it's great to see you. Thank you so much. Great to see you, Adam. It feels like it's been more than a month. These uh, days feel like years. <laughs> you know, they do. Well, especially for you, Stephanie, because you have been appearing on the mass media, mass financial media, and oh. mass media in general a lot of late. So it is great to see your star continuing to burn ever oh. brighter in the minds and hearts of, uh, of everybody in the financial world. Well, thank you. I um, I definitely don't don't want to jinx myself here. Also, I'll just keep my mouth shut. <laughs> All right. Well, I I, I will say it for you. Um, very well deserved, and uh, hopefully, it's just the start. Um, all right. Well, um, we I want to get going here because we got a lot of material to to slog through. If we have the time and opportunity, I'd like to pull some um, questions from the audience here, if possible. Folks, apologies if that doesn't happen, but we will try to reserve some time at the end. To do that, I uh, got a lot to plow through first, though. Um, Stephanie, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just start with the softball I always do, just to get the conversation rolling. But what is your current assessment right now of the global economy and financial markets? So I've been for quite a while trying to um, characterize what we're going through now, not so much as a tightening uh, environment, so much as an interest rate shock. Um, and the difference is that unlike a standard tightening cycle, an interest rate shock has a tendency to hit all at once um, with devastating force. Um, so it's sort of like a gut punch to the economy and the markets. Um, and I think what happened is that when the Fed first started raising rates, um, it did so so quickly that we had, you know, 12 months where um, all these rate hikes were being pushed out um, and they hadn't really gotten into the system yet. And now we're seeing the fruits of those rate hikes start to be uh, harvested, um, as you will. Um, and obviously, not surprisingly, given the unprecedented speed and magnitude of those rate hikes, I think the impact is going to be pretty profound. Right now, obviously, everyone's focused on the banks as the main problem, but I don't think by any stretch of the imagination it's going to remain confined to the banking sector. And I think maybe even the last time we talked, I was characterizing this as that old everything everywhere all at once type of yeah. thing. Um, and the fact is that while everyone is looking at the banks, the wheels are coming off in other places. It's just being obscured by the headlines about, you know, when you see these regional bank stocks sell off, um, the way they have, it's understandable that people are are myopically focused on that. But there's plenty of other bad stuff that's going on that's kind of been swept to the sidelines that I think will come into focus as we move forward. But so generally, that's my my outlook is that we're seeing the the impact of that interest rate shock now, and we're just getting started in that process. Okay, is this a scenario? Um, I've sort of used the analogy before of like. Um, shooting a bull elephant and mortally wounding it uh, where that elephant can still trample a lot of people before it kills over and dies. So <laughs> has, has the injury already happened here with the interest rate shock? And it's just a matter at this point of the economy lurching around for as long as it can before it just you know kills over? Or is this going to be like a continuation of, of uh, injuries as it goes along? 
Well, I think, you know, it's a good description and there are areas where I think that's really apt. Like I've been focused as we've talked about on the corporate credit market as really a flashpoint for major problems. And what you're seeing is to the extent that companies can restructure the debts that are now maturing, they're doing that. So a lot of um, this debt is kind of being restructured um, and extended essentially to the extent they can um, on the sidelines here. So there, that is kind of that wounded elephant that's figuring out some way to kind of keep causing damage. But basically, eventually, you can't restructure every single piece of paper out there as it becomes a, you know, a all-encompassing problem. So I think it's a good description. Um, and you are seeing it in a variety of places, not just corporate credit, you know, consumer credit card, auto loans. I know you've, you know, had some interesting interviews on that front that would probably make your hair stand up in terms of just how ugly things are there. And there are plenty of headlines on that score. And then, you know, I don't even know how you quantify what's going on with buy now, pay later. But to me, that seemed like a complete disaster <laughs> first implemented it, you know. Um, so uh, there are plenty of areas to be concerned about. Um, and, you know, this is why um, if I can sort of cut to the, the punchline for me, um, because I've been concerned that we'll have credit defaults everywhere, not just you know, in commercial real estate, but also in corporate and consumer loans, et cetera. And I, you know, I would worry about the credit quality of municipals as well, um, eventually, um, because I think it's going to affect everything. I've been trying to figure out, okay, who are the bag holders? Who are the people who are most exposed to all of the stuff that's going to go toxic? And that's brought me, as we've talked about endlessly here, to the pension funds, um, but I would also say the insurers, pensions and insurers are the two constituents that have a hard return mandate that's otherworldly in, you know, over the last 10 years, we had basically 0% risk-free yields and they were trying to generate 8% plus, re, you know, right. style returns. So we know that they're exposed to everything that's starting to go belly up. Um, and that's why rather than trying to focus on each discrete sector that's having a problem, I've been really focused on the guys who are going to be left holding the bag, um, which may or may not be right. But I think that's where the, the buck eventually stops. Okay. Um, I, I actually want to dig into that with you in a little bit in terms of are there opportunities there for investors? Um, pensions, I think, harder to short, but yeah. you can definitely short insurers. Yeah. Um, real quick. So this, the you talked about um, you know, you're really looking at the corporate credit side of things and, and expecting that to be where the real stumbling and, and the real, um, you know, whatever, the, the, the collateral damage to, to, to start happening. Um, and that makes total sense, right? I mean, you're a company, you've been able to finance yourself at really cheap debt for a long time, and then all of a sudden interest rates are, are, are way higher. Um, I think some people are surprised that like, hey, we've we've had this incredibly fast and, and high interest rate uh, increase over the past year. Why are these companies not keeling over already? And um, I want to make sure that I understand this correctly, which is, like you said, as many as can are going out and restructuring their debt. They're highly likely getting new debt at a much higher rate. And right. the thing is, is it's it's I sort of liken it in my mind to like 
I don't know, eating your seed corn during the winter or like when the body is starving, it starts actually basically metabolizing your organs, right? Uh-huh. Where it's like, it, yes, it's staying alive for longer, but it's now dooming itself by the choice it's making, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is that kind of where we are in the debt cycle right now with a lot of these these corporations? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Well, one, for just uh, right off the bat, one of the reasons they're even able to do this is a lot of the lending that I'm referring to is these levered loans. Um, and as you've surely read over the last several years, um, the loan covenants in those securities have basically been, you know, as lax as ever. So basically it provided the wiggle room for companies if they got in the current situation to replace existing debt with new debt or pay interest with new debt rather than you know cash so um that's what's happening now but like you said the question is um how long does that keep them alive for um and i think this takes us back to sort of the bigger macro question which is um so much of this rests on the assumption that either the economy is going to have a short and shallow recession and things will recover and they'll be able all they need to do is muddle through this period and then they'll be able to maintain that higher debt service you know six nine months down the road because things will be better um or the fed's going to cut rates aggressively and they'll be able to go back to their creditors and say hey look you know we can't continue servicing our debt at these rates especially when the prevailing interest rate is now whatever many basis points lower. So I think there's those two um, hopes out there that are kind of sustaining this market and maybe making it so that the creditors are actually willing to do this because they figure, hey, maybe these guys are right. If we if we throw them you know, a little more cash, they'll be able to just get through this brief period in time right. until we get to the other side of the uh cavern you know the chasm um and obviously i happen to think that that's just throwing good money after bad and this will all end up in tears Um, yeah that seems like such a pervasive mentality right now you see it i think in the housing market right where the sellers are just saying if we all just hang together we can stay here until the fed pivots and to then, say nothing of the stocks. Have you looked at these housing stocks too? Well, I know the home builder stocks have been up near all-time highs, which right. is bananas, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then talking to Lucky Lopez yesterday, the auto guy, he said yeah. he's seen something, he's seeing something now he's never seen before, which is that banks are helping existing auto loan holders restructure uh, their auto loans, where they're basically, it's almost like they're making it a balloon payment, right? Where it's like, okay, you know what, we'll take down your current monthly payments, and you just have to pay us more in, you know, 84 months or whatever, right? This is reminiscent of the housing bubble. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. And it's all just, you know, yeah. financial sort of shell game chicanery, just to, hey, let's, let's hope we somehow can get through this, right? Yeah. No, I think in this gets back to that core consensus that whatever we're going to go through is going to be short and shallow. You know, the consensus of economists and, uh, you know, the Fed's in a total fairy tale land, but the consensus of Wall Street economists is that, you know, you get your classic two-quarter technical recession, but it's not going to be anything super uh, material. It sure as hell isn't going to be 2008-9 all over again. Um, and the Fed will pivot and we'll be back off to the races. I think that's really a very solid consensus 
view out there and you see it like you know we were talking about that the housing stocks are obviously anticipating the pivot and the lower rates that will help resuscitate the uh the housing market at the same time you know as powell said in his presser um maybe it's different this time because uh the unemployment rate won't move higher you know we have a structural shift in the labor market and therefore you know once the fed starts cutting rates employment is still solid so people will have the income with which to go out and buy new homes and buy new cars and everything will be fine so. all right so i got <laughs> lots of data on all those points right here but it is true i mean that that's sort of what the market uh in, in my mind, that's almost the only way you can justify today's market prices is, is if we really do not have much of a landing, right? Yeah. And interestingly, I have interviewed a couple of smart, successful investors recently in the past week um, who have said, one of which was live, it was Michael Howell on this channel for folks that watch that. One is coming up next week, Dan Tapiero, um, who have basically said, yeah, I, I, I think the corrections happened. And that was last year was all we're going to get. And, you know, markets beginning to price in getting through this, you know, whatever mild recession we have, even if we have one. Right. And, and it's looking beyond that. I don't think you subscribe to that. And I'm going to let you react to that in just a second. Um, when we were planning for this conversation, we talked about a number of topics. Again, I'm going to try to squeeze as many in as I can here. But you said at this point, it's still all about the Fed. So can I can I just let you opine on that right now? You know, in other words, wh why do you think right now the most important uh, determinant of what's going on is the Fed? And what do you expect the Fed to do from here? Well, so just getting to what we were talking about, I think it's the most important because that's the area that is keeping the market afloat right now is this idea that the Fed's going to pivot um, and that whatever we're going through will therefore be short and shallow because they're not going to let us go into some 2008-9 style meltdown. Um, and I, you know, when you look at, as you said, when you look across asset markets, that's pretty much the only uh, rationale you can point to for keeping things uh, together as they have been in the face of, you know, the worst bank crisis since 2008-9, actually worse so far. Um, in terms of losses that we've right. seen. Um, I mean, and so I sorry to interrupt, but, but three of the four biggest bank failures in U.S. history have in happened history. in the past month. Right. <laughs> but it's like, huh, no problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and the stat that I've been talking about for months that, um, again, is unfolding in the background, is that corporate bankruptcies are running at the fastest pace since 2009. So to people who dismiss parallels to 2008-9, you now have two areas where it's as bad or worse. You know, it's as bad from corporate bankruptcies, it's worse from the banking sector. So I think there's a lot of reason to be um, skeptical about this confidence that the Fed's going to pivot. Um, and everything about their, um, their language uh, and their actions over the last year suggest they mean it when they keep saying higher for longer. Um, and if you listen to what Powell said in the presser, again, you know, he talked about maybe he, he actually used the phrase, I think it could be different this time as relates to the labor market, which is crucial because it's one of their two mandates. Um, so if they think that the labor market really isn't going to ease very much, they're going to have to keep rates higher longer to get the inflation traction they want. Yeah. And, and start to interject, but for, 
I, mean, I think since last May or June, Powell had basically said, look, I got two mandates, price stability and uh, full employment. And employment's really hot right now. It's almost over hot. So I'm going to sacrifice that if I need to, to get inflation under control. Exactly. And so the longer that he thinks that inflation, that the jobs market isn't really going to suffer, it just gives him more and more runway to say, okay, I can go full bore on demand destruction yep. because we don't have an unemployment problem. In fact, we're not even close to one. Exactly. So they definitely believe that there's some structural difference in the labor market right now, that if they believe that, I think would keep them leaning toward higher for longer. Um, and then, I mean, it's, it's laughable, but he stood there on Wednesday at the podium and described the banking system as sound and resilient. <laughs> and all I could think about were those scenes during the BLM riots where the buildings were on fire and the uh, and the reporter was describing it as mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful protests. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. was a perfect analogy for Powell giving this press conference while the regional bank stocks are literally a nosedive. Um, and he's describing it as sound as resilient. So now maybe he's doing that because he doesn't want people to panic. If he right. said, you know, we're worried about the banking system, we'd be in a whole other. Well, and, and he's the guy in charge of running the entity that oversees the banking system. Right. So and of course, he's not going to say, hey, we're doing a terrible job and running things off the rails. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, although clearly they are. So. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I, what I come back to is this confidence in the pivot. Because the pivot is really what's holding the, the markets up. And again, their language and their actions and the things that they're looking at to indicate to them that they can pivot all suggest that it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, and so my sense is that as the economy slows and things start to devolve and we have more stress in the banking system and more corporate bankruptcies and you know these delinquency rate numbers start to go up, um, their first impulse is more likely to stop QT than to cut rates. Um, that would be my sense is that they probably, if they were going to pick one lever, they'd probably stop that so that they can re, you know, maintain that higher for longer um, promise without having egg on their face. Because so far they've, you know, they've gotten everything wrong. You know, inflation is transitory and then it goes up to 8% and then they declare right. that it's not transitory anymore right as it comes, you know, right. dropping down. And, um, and before that, that stimulus wasn't going to create an inflation problem. Right. Oh, God. I mean, the history of Fed missteps is uh, long and lugubrious, as I like to say. But, <laughs> uh, um, so I guess, you know, what I come back to is if it's true that the Fed isn't going to pivot, um, in the amount of time that the markets currently expect, that's going to create its own market reaction, which will not be positive. Um, and that, I think, would be the catalyst for the pivot. I mean, I think you and I agree on this, that the markets are discounting the pivot before the pain, but the pivot is going to be a consequence of the pain. Right. Um, so we need to see blood in the streets before this Fed that's gotten everything wrong and is now trying to belatedly protect their legacy um, really moves to cut rates. It's going to take a tremendous amount of really ugly, uh, you know, red on the screen, red on Main Street um, before they move, in my opinion. OK. And, and so one of the things that could that could intensify the pain that we see right now 
is the lag effect, which you and I have talked about many times, right? Um, and I, I sort of describe them as shockwaves traveling through time, right? Where the lever was pulled multiple times over the past year, and it takes about a year for the full impact of those hikes to hit the economy. And I sort of talked about it as like just a, a series of shockwaves that are slamming into the economy again and again over the next couple of quarters. I think you've largely agreed with that, although you, I think, had an even better analogy, uh, or, or maybe this was uh, Nick Timros's analogy, but it's more like the the ketchup bottle where uh -huh. you're hitting, hitting, yeah, hitting right. it, and then, then it gets to your everywhere all at once where it all just yes. warps out and ruins your meal. Um, but another factor uh, on top of the Fed rate hikes and the quantitative tightening uh, is the fact that banks have been tightening their lending mm -hmm. standards. And they were already doing that coming into this year. But then, of course, we had these banking system failures. And now they're kind of freaking out, understandably, in the wake of that. And that's tightening even further. And even Powell has said, hey, these substitute as additional rate yep. hikes with their own lag effect as well. So uh, how, how concerned are you about this uh, incremental factor of the additional tightening? Yeah, well, we've been waiting for that to happen. And the fact is the capital markets, which is where the vast majority of credit is created now, most of the credit is created outside the traditional banking system these days. Capital markets have been tightening credit for over a year. I mean, they started tightening credit back when the Fed first started raising rates. We saw a levered loan issuance down last year was down, I think, 50% in you know, investment grade and chunk issuance was down as well. This year so far, I know levered loan issuance is down another 40%. So the capital market's been turning the screws for a year. It's just taken a while for the traditional banking sector to get to that point. And part of it is, um, you know, uh, there's that competition between the banking sector and the capital markets. So what happens is when a company finds that it's being squeezed out of the capital markets, then they might go back to the banks and say, hey, all right, well, how about we take out a loan from you? So what what is bad for one area ends up inuring to the benefit of the other for a little while. And the banks are always the saps who don't realize that the credit quality is deteriorating and they look at, oh, we can gather some market share, we can make some more loans. Um, the capital markets have figured it out and the bankers are still sitting there with their heads up their butts and they go, okay, yeah, look at this. We can make all these great, you know, CNI loans and uh, auto loans, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what's happened. Now the banks are obviously seeing what the capital markets figured out a while ago. Um, and I have a, a chart um, that overlays bank lending year on year with the Fed funds rate. And as late as banks usually are to tighten credit, um, we've still never been in a situation where bank lending growth has slowed to the point that it has now when the Fed was still raising rates. Mm. Normally, by the time I think uh bank bank loans are running around one and a half percent year on year growth right now down from whatever eight or something like that um normally by the time you get to sort of this one percent one and a half percent area the fed has either fully completed an easing cycle or somewhere in that easing cycle this time you've got bank lending doing this and the fed funds rate doing this so it's uncharted territory um, but again, this is the scary thing, Adam, is that the bank lending was slowing. Um, and now, you know, the recession in theory hasn't yet started. Um, and we're just at the beginning of this whole process. So how negative is bank lending going to get? It will be very restrictive on the economy, as you said. 
Um, and so that will do a lot of the additional tightening for the Fed for them. Okay. So on, on whether it's going to be a minor issue or a major issue, I hear you saying this is going to be a major issue, this additional tightening. Well, and also, I mean, again, getting way back into the sort of macro stratosphere, um, it all comes back to basic math. You know, the U.S. economy depends on credit to grow. And we passed the, the point of diminishing marginal returns on that credit a long time ago, meaning that not only do we need credit to get the economy to grow, but we need an ever expanding amount of credit to grow. If we have the same amount of credit injected in the economy this year as we did last year, growth will slow. So it's just math. Um, so when you t say, well, the capital markets are contracting credit and the banks are contracting credit, and then you tell me we're going to have a short and shallow two-quarter meaningless recession, I just don't see how that's possible. If we had no growth in credit, we'd be at zero in terms of GDP. So it, just a minor decrease in credit growth would give you that mild recession. I think we're in for something much more like 2008-9, like, like I've you know, droned on with you before about. <laughs> okay. I, I want to put up two charts here real quickly, just sort of corroborate what you're saying here. So one, this was um, big in the news yesterday. <clears throat> um, this is the Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey, um, also referred to as the SLUs. Um, and basically, it's a, it's a, a measure of banks tightening uh, their lending standards. And you can see here that we are in a pretty dramatic uptrend um, since the end of, of 2021, but we're, we're, we're way ahead of that kind of median line there. Um, and I want to compare that with <clears throat> this chart here from Michael Kantrowitz, who I interviewed on this channel two weeks ago or so, one of the best interviews of the year so far. Um, and Michael has a, a, a ton of data. Sefe, I don't know if you're familiar with his HOPE framework, um, yeah. but it's super useful. Yeah. And um, his HOPE framework basically says, look, this is the process by which we go into recession. And three of the four dominoes have fallen. The, the fourth is the E, which is employment, which we'll talk about in just a second. Mm -hmm. um, but he says once that process is underway, then there's a bunch of factors that are coincident with either a hard landing or a soft landing. And this chart here shows you that hard landings are preceded by tightening lending standards. And you see here on the, the top part of the chart what, what tightening looks like in each previous recession we've gone into. And you see we have all the same indicators this time around, right? So, um, you know, I look at those two charts to your points there, Stephanie, and just say, all right, yeah, you know, uh, credit is tightening pretty strongly and can momentum still to the upside. And the history shows every time we see this, we pretty much go into a recession. So it, it is hard to just sort of blindly agree with the market that like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, maybe we'll just have a little, little flesh wound here and uh, be right back to growth. The other thing I would add on to that is we haven't even talked about earnings. You know, we're talking about the debt service side, but your ability to service your debt is a function of how much income you're, you're generating. Um, and that's another area where I think there's a over, there's a too much complacency. Um, because this earnings picture, I mean, obviously we're already into an earnings recession, um, but again, you know, that's anticipated to be short and shallow. Um, but the reality is that we never saw a gap as wide as we did recently 
between the CPI and the PPI, meaning that the implied squeeze on profit margins from input prices, which is the PPI, rising so much faster than the CPI, the ability to pass those input prices along. Um, we, we never saw anything that acute since the 1970s, the mid-1970s, not surprisingly. Um, so that sets up a real problem for corporate profits. Um, and what you, we have right now is this environment where everyone's so focused on uh, expected earnings. So they're cheering the fact that earnings are beating expectations, but you can't service your debt with better than expected earnings when expected is minus 5%, you know? Exactly. So yeah. that's, and that's the whole, that... like Lance Roberts rants on this. He calls it the millennial <laughs> earnings season every year, but it's like, we have all these beats, but we only have the beats because the analysts keep bringing their expectations down up until earnings announcement day. Right. Right, but, and, and that was true. And they were bringing them down, but at least they were still positive. We're in negative. Now we're talking about something like 80% of the companies that have reported so far are beating but we're still going to have a decline in earnings this quarter. Um, so that's great. Congratulations. You beat down, you know, lowered estimates, but you're, you're not, you have no profit growth with which to service this higher right. cost or, debt. Or, or, even, or even Apple, which had negative revenue growth year over year, and yet the stock was up like 5%, right? Yeah. And then that gets into the whole thing that I keep harping on, which is that the skew between the haves and the have-nots in the corporate sector makes the consumer sector look tame. Mm. You know, if you take the S&P 500, which is the largest 500 companies arguably on the planet, not, you know, not just in the U.S., but in the world, um, the top 10 have more cash than the bottom 400. So, and those are the largest corporations. Can you imagine if you expanded it out to like the Russell 3000, what right. the bottom 1500 companies have? I mean, I, presumably they have zero cash. So the ability to absorb this higher debt service becomes a real issue. So there are two moving parts. There's a higher interest rate and then there's the withering corporate profits. And that combination, I think, really rules out any kind of mild recession in, in my view. But yeah. Um, God, there's so many questions I have based <laughs> off of that. Because, um, of course, you know, then that's why capital continues to flee even further into those few stocks, right? Because they're right. quote unquote safe, right? Um, all right. Look, um, <clears throat> folks, I'm going to ask a few more questions of Stephanie. We've, we've got a little less than 15 minutes left. I'm going to try to make room for questions if we can, but, but these are important questions. We want to make sure to ask while Stephanie's here. Um, so, Stephanie, um, I mentioned the key last bulwark in Michael Kantorowicz's hope framework, which is employment, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you and I have ranted many times about <clears throat> our, our levels of suspicion of the government reported jobs numbers. Um, and we just had a, a payroll report last week, which was really a blowout to the upside. Um, again, you know, letting the Fed say, okay, look, no problems there. Um, so, uh, <laughs> We'd love to give love to get any of your updated thoughts on on employment, but I, but I want to show this chart really quickly, which um, was put up by Taminga Neely over at Distill, <clears throat> which she said, "Look, you know, we should be looking at other different alternative ways uh, to to measure employment, just to see if the government numbers are, are correct or not." And so she chooses to look at withheld employment taxes, right? So this is, hey, if you're you know if you're on a payroll, uh, withholding is taken out of your paycheck. And why she likes this data is it's reported daily by the Treasury, 
Yeah. Right. So the payroll reports comes out once a month. Um, it's calculated by the government. It's like a snapshot, you know, monthly snapshot. And there's all sorts of things that can color it where this is, like I said, it's a daily reported number straight from the treasury of how much is being taken out of people's um, paychecks for, for withheld taxes. She does a trailing 12 month average here just to sort of, you know, get rid of the noise. And you can see, you know, since the, the end of last year, or sorry, the end of 2021, this thing's been a nosedive uh, state and, and the trajectory is, is, you know, looks very much like it's gonna break through the zero line and go negative very soon. So, you know, you and I have talked about other indicators in the real economy that, you know, give us confidence that, that the, the government numbers are not to be leaned on or trusted um, fully. But data like that really shows me, hey, if you look at this metric over here, it's way different <laughs> than what the yeah. BLS numbers are saying. So anyways, yeah. anything you want to say on employment? Well, uh, several things. Uh, first, um, kudos to John Lissio. May he rest in peace because he was the one who started this whole monitoring the tax receipt data as a window into employment with the Lissio report. And I'm really dating myself with that reference at this point. <laughs> um but uh, as relates to the payroll numbers, just to underscore um, why we can be suspicious about it first, um, you know, they have two ways that they can color this data. There's something called a birth death plug factor, which is essentially a number that they try to impute new business creations that haven't yet been reflected in payroll numbers or their businesses that are so small that they don't use one of the big payroll processing companies to run their payroll. So they just picked a number basically out of thin air. It's based on last year's IRS tax data for corporate filings. So it has really no bearing in current reality, hmm. um, but they can monkey with that number. So this in the latest report, the birth death plug factor was a full 70,000 jobs higher than the one they had used in the prior April's over the last five years. So, and for no reason that we're told about. The second thing is the seasonal adjustment, which, you know, I won't go too deep into the weeds on, but there again, you know, they pulled that rabbit out of the hat too by making the seasonals, um, they created a more flattering seasonal benchmark that um, had the effect of boosting the headline print for the April number. But all of that is underscored by the fact that the February and March numbers were revised lower. So we're finally starting to see the BLS right. acknowledge that, oops, we got it wrong in February and March. And I think the cumulative revision was almost 150,000 lower. So that's a significant increase when you're only running at about 150,000 a month. Um, so I think that's going to be the new game is they'll print a nice print in the current month and they'll, they'll go back and say, whoops, we got last month's number wrong. So well, and that, that seems to be you know, some people are kind of accusing uh, the, the current administration of this, which is every month is a rosy number. And to, to be able to do that, we then revise all the previous ones down. So it's kind of like, let's cheer the headline and ignore the revisions yeah. that we're making. Yeah. Well, but then, right. uh, there are a couple, just uh, one thing I want to get into is the NFIB, because it just came out this morning, okay. which is small businesses who, you know, theoretically are the main job creators out there. And the headline, uh, small business optimism, which now should be called the small business pessimism report, <laughs> um, was the lowest reading in 10 years, meaning it was lower than the depths of the COVID lockdown. 
So this is the worst since, to, you know, basically since we were coming out of the 2008-9 global financial crisis. That's not a good sign. Um, their outlook for sales, absolutely withering. And on the inflation front, you know, they were ranking inflation as their number one concern. That's come down dramatically, as have their expected uh, price, uh, you know, the prices they're going to charge customers. That's been cut in half since the beginning of the year in just four months. So we're seeing a lot of real weakening in the small businesses that are the engine of growth for employment. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, engine of growth for employment. I mean, we, we, we think about these big companies and we look at the layoffs that are being announced by a lot of the metas and Amazon yeah. and stuff of the world. But that actually is a small fraction of the, the workforce. Most of the workforce is in the small business world, as you mentioned. Um, all right. So um, I'm going to start going over to questions from the chat. Um, real quick, I'm going to pull a few together. Um, that uh, One thing that you've warned about in the past, Stephanie, that's going to be a big indicator for you, if I remember correctly, is credit spreads. Uh -huh. And credit spreads are still remaining relatively moderate right now. They haven't really taken off yet. So when do you think we're, what do you think is going to cause that to start widening? Well, it's a good question because as I said, you know, bankruptcies, every day you pick up the paper, there's a new bankruptcy. Jenny Craig, Tuesday morning, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond. It's And these aren't companies no one's ever heard of before. So you'd think that would get, you know, garner a little bit more attention. Um, and the credit ratings have really deteriorated where there are a lot of downgrades. We had actually nine fallen angels, which is a big deal, but meaning that these companies were downgraded from investment grade to junk. Um, and I think that could begin to be a catalyst because if you're a, a mutual fund manager and you've got a quality mandate where you can only hold the investment grade paper and some of this paper gets downgraded to junk, you got to sell it. And then you've got to look through your portfolio and make sure you don't hold any other stuff that might be ripe for a downgrade. Um, so that could create some issues in the market if we get more of those fallen angel uh, downgrades. But, you know, to be honest, I have been surprised. But then when you look at it relative to what we're seeing in the stock market, it all fits. It's the same narrative. You know, these right. are all risk assets. So, you know, if you're going to buy uh, Meta, you may as well buy a junk bond you know it's the same bet it's just two different ways of expressing it essentially um so i, I think it's the same consensus view that the pivot's going to come and we'll have a short and shallow recession and then we'll everything will be fine that's that's working at credit spreads right now okay and does memory serve somebody and i think it might have been you during our conference shared an etf that was sort of like a a way to play credit spreads was that you or? Yes, it was. And, and now I forget. It's like SDS. I don't want to get it wrong. It was. Um, now I'm going to have to look this up. Now, huh. I mean, this is what I do, Adam. I buy it and I have it in my account and then I forget what it is. You kind of forget. You, yeah, okay. I'm, <laughs> this, I'm like that this is how I stay sane. I don't sit here watching my positions all day, every day. So, But I will get back to you on that and you can tweet it out or something. Okay, yeah. great. So Steph, we're now getting into the lightning round because we only have about six minutes left, five minutes left now before uh, I promised I'd, I'd let you out of here. Um, so so give punchy as punchy answers as you can to these questions. Um, so uh, one here is you got a few people's attention when you talked about uh, pensions being one of the, the big things you expect to go to, the big bag holders. 
Um, Pops McGee here asks, hey, do you believe existing military pensions are or will be in jeopardy? Or do you think they're more safe than the average pension? Well, I mean, I think all these pensions are exposed to this. The, the real um, problem is at the state and local level. Um, but, you know, every pension had to get into risk in some form or fashion. So that I think they'll all be exposed. But the question is, um, you know, I... I would hope for sure that if there's going to be a bailout of pensions, that military pensions would be number it's one the on the list. list. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's actually where pensions started, by the way, back in Roman times. That's how the pension first it, came into being. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I think there'll be damage there. I'm really concerned mostly about the state and local pensions. Um, but Again, you know, I do. I don't see how, and Adam, you and I have talked endlessly about this. I don't see how they cannot bail out these pensions um, after bailing out Goldman Sachs and you know all the Wall Street banks in two thousand eight nine. I just don't see how right. that happens. I agree with you, and as we've talked about, I just don't see how that doesn't unleash a massive, you know, sort of social rift of where people, those who yeah. have pensions are getting bailed out, but those who don't aren't. And then, you know, which is why it may be, an, it'll probably be an indirect bailout where they'll basically, the federal government will say, you know what, we're going to um, give stimulus to the states. We're basically going to hand money to the states and they can use that then, yeah. money being fungible to fund whatever they want. And so it won't be billed as a pension fund bailout. It'll be aid to the states who will then use that money to bail out their pensions. Right, right. I'm sure, well, and whatever, I'm, I, even <laughs> if that happens, I'm sure there'll be some anger. Um, one thing we didn't get into, which we don't have time because I want to ask one or two other questions here, um, is, you know, we also just have had this implicit change in how bank uh, deposits are protected. Right, where we basically had two categories, insured and uninsured, and it looks like all of a sudden uninsured is now insured, and that seems to have been done with sort of the wave of a wand. I think it right? depends what bank you're at, doesn't it? That's what they're saying right now, but I have had some banking experts on the program recently who are saying, look, right now it it, it is seeming sort of implicit that this just might be policy going forward. We'll see, but yeah. in, it, yes, they're saying it, we're going to do it on a bank by bank basis. But right. at least so far this year, every bank they've decided to do it with. Yeah. Um, so, uh, folks, remember that you are um, a, a gold holder. Uh, that you, you know, gold is in your portfolio. Um, I guess first question is: is is it still? Are you still as? Are you as more or less bullish about its prospects than you have been? And then specifically, Larry's asking. Uh, how much do you hold physically versus in other related assets? So um, it's still just as much a core position for me. It's my largest position. Um, and my view on it hasn't changed at all. I mean, I would say my view has gotten better. But honestly, I anticipated this would be exactly why I would want to have gold. So it, it's pretty much status quo in that regard. As to yeah. physical, sorry. I was just going to say now gold is <clears throat> is up near its all time highs. It's had a pretty good run the past month. Do you see that as like? Do you have a sense here that is this the beginning of of, of the big run most folks have been expecting, or too early to tell? Um, well, I'd like to think it's the beginning of the big run. The one thing that I do look at very closely isn't just gold, but gold relative to copper. Um, the gold copper ratio has always been a great sort of canary in the coal mine of financial stress. 
And right now, I mean, it actually got over 5.3 times, which is just a number that's irrelevant. But if you go back through history, we've only ever been at that level a handful of times. And every time we've been at that level, we've been in a crisis. So, you know, obviously we're in a crisis in terms of the banking system. Um, we'll see how much more that devolves. But I, th I think as it devolves, gold will go much, much higher. Um, especially as these, if I'm right, and these expectations that what we're going through is just going to be a very mild affair um, begin to be called into question. But getting to Larry's thing on how much is physical, um, you know, I'm not sitting here in Fort Knox with bars and everything behind me. Um, so I own gold um, through vehicles that give me delivery and physical. Sprott has a, um, a vehicle called Fizz, P-H-Y-S, um, so that's really primarily how I own gold. So it is physical to the extent that I can have it redeemed that way. And then I have a, a small position in miners. I'd say maybe, you know, 20% of my gold position is, is in mining stocks versus the bullion. Okay. Uh, I've got a ton of follow-up questions on that, specifically, <laughs> but I'm not going to ask him because I promise I get you out of here. One last user question. Um, what are your thoughts on silver? I got a yeah. bunch of questions about this after you were on last time. So, well, this will be a good place to end because I don't really have a whole lot to say on silver. I mean, I've been, uh, I guess I got so myopically focused on gold that that's been my main vehicle. Um, and I haven't, I have to confess, I haven't done work on silver. I would obviously, the macro case for it is the same. Um, I just am not as fluent in the supply demand situation, et cetera there. But I mean, generally I would be very bullish silver, just like I am on gold, given where I think we're going. All right. Um, well, look, um, folks, we're going to have to stop the Q and a there. I know we'd love to have, uh, an infinite amount of time to be able to do this with <laughs> Stephanie, but she was kind enough to give us the time she had today to do this. Last question for you, Stephanie is. Uh, there's the URL to your website. Um, you're known on Wall Street for your institutional analysis. Um, but if I remember correctly, I believe you actually have like a, a newsletter for the average retail investor too. Is that true? Yeah. So uh, it's essentially I cherry pick, um, you know, what I think is the most uh, valuable of my commentaries for a given month. And that's what I send out to my retail subscribers, but they also get access to the podcast that I do with Grant Williams, who, you know, um, our super terrific happy hour, which is super terrific, but rarely happy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's phenomenal. Um, and, uh, so yeah, go check out the website. And if you have any questions, there's a contact form and, you know, we'll answer your questions about it. Um, but yeah, that's it. And you can follow me on Twitter, um, for the three tweets I make a month. <laughs> oh, you know, and I didn't create a little, uh, overlay for that, but that's at Spomboy, right? At S Pomboy. Yeah, I believe so. Twitter. I really should know that, but I think. Yeah, you should know that that is your Twitter handle. Just say so Okay, Thank you. <laughs> Um, all right, folks. Well, look, go go follow Steph on Twitter. Definitely, if interested in her newsletter for retail folks like you, go check it out. I have a lot of folks always asking me, Stephanie, how they can get more Stephanie. That's a great way to do so. Yeah. Just a reminder for folks, um, if you're watching this and are feeling like this is a pretty challenging environment to navigate as an individual person, um, if you want some help on you know ideas for for 
perhaps how you can better do that, go schedule a free consultation with one of the financial advisors endorsed by Wealthion by just going to Wealthion.com. You are right there. Uh, it's totally free. doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with these guys. They just offer it as a public service. If you've enjoyed this monthly session here with Stephanie, please do us a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Stephanie, wonderful as always. Thanks so much for joining Thanks, us. Thanks, Adam. It's Great fun. The time flies. So It really uh, does. The challenge is packing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much we want to pack into these discussions, and you're such a great font of wisdom. Yeah. Uh, maybe next time we'll schedule an eight-hour one and still only get three hours. <laughs> You know, that sounds like a nightmare to you, but yeah. I'll, I'll need about five of these, but I'll get it. <laughs> All, right. All right. And everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Thanks, Adam. Take care.